Helberg. And I'm Calvin Pollock. On today's show, we will be talking to Anna Cook, a soon-to-be PhD holder in rhetoric from Carnegie Mellon. She talks to us about her analysis of arguments that played out on the Global Warming Wikipedia page and how the use of language plays a major role in how people interpret the certainty of scientific facts. Then after that, we have a very interesting conversation with uh, someone who was down in the trenches of Wikipedia, Daniel Dixon LaPrade, a Carnegie Mellon PhD alum, and he talks to us about some of the battles he had um, on the talk pages of Wikipedia. So that's very interesting. And uh, Alex, what do you? What's going on over there? What are you doing on your phone? S- sorry, hang on just one second. I just gotta, I just gotta fire off this last, last little comment here. I'll be, I'll be done in just one second. Dude, this is, this is not okay. We, you know, we put a lot of work into these episodes, and I'm here trying I to give it, give it my all. You're not. You're not participating. I'm sorry. You know, I just this is really this is a really important argument. I'm 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 writing a Yelp review of this pizza restaurant I went to last night, and it's just I, I just this is really important to me. I just really need to really need to get this get this written here. No, I I'm not okay with this. Posting while recording is not allowed. Listen, listen, Calvin. People are misrepresenting the way that toppings are put on pizzas in these Yelp reviews. They're they think that. Putting raw cheese on a pizza is like this cool new hipster thing to do. This, the record needs to be set straight. This is not okay for pizza. I, I am I am going to battle for this, uh, for the way that pizza really should be represented in in society. You know what? That is really important. I'm just going to let this slide. Thank you for doing. Thank well, you for doing that work. No problem. I you know happy to. It's a battle. I'm happy to fight. All right. Well, let's get into the episode. All right. Today, we're thrilled to be joined once again by Anna Cook, a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Carnegie Mellon University. She has done research on issues ranging from the study of genres in online communication to intellectual risk-taking in writing classrooms, and she is currently in the process of finishing her dissertation, entitled Collaborating in Public, How Openness Shapes Global Warming Articles in Wikipedia. Anna, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Alex. Hi, Uh, Anna. (laughs) hi, Hi, Calvin. It's a pleasure to be here. Right. So I thought that we might uh, start off our interview here together, you know, just kind of talking in general about what it is that you've been studying recently. The topic of our conversation, I think we wanted to frame it around some of your research work that you've done for your dissertation. So can you tell us just a little kind of a baseline of what you've been researching and what you've been studying? Sure. So my dissertation looks at basically how the global warming pages in Wikipedia change over time, particularly in the year 2007 and also kind of the development of over course of time. I've always, or for a long time, I've had an interest in how networked online discourse and particularly collaborative environments and Web 2.0 technologies like Wikipedia shape public discourse. I've been sort of curious about it. And so I look at this in Wikipedia and I've been tracing basically how a lot of the project focuses on how the global warming pages and related pages change in the wake of the publication of the 2007 International Panel on Climate Change's fourth assessment report. So what what led you to what led you to climate change as a domain of study? Why is that an interesting topic on Wikipedia to be studying? Well, for a range of reasons, um, it's one you know arguably the 
among the most significant issues of our time. Um, it's also tremendously complex from a communication standpoint because it draws on such a range of discourse spheres, the scientific and technical spheres, public policy spheres, kind of personal spheres. And it has uh, historically and kind of well-documented fraught treatment in traditional news media. Um, there's a lot of research in communication that has shown the way that um, Basically, the journalistic norms of aiming for balance uh, and um, objectivity in the mainstream press have led to basically biased representations of the scientific consensus. What happens is that journalists will take an art, you know, the kind of organization like the IPCC, which uh, represents thousands and thousands of climate scientists, and say, you know, this organization says this, and then go and find these kind of uh, individual climate deniers or scientists who disagree with the mainstream consensus, put them in the same news report in a way that makes it sound as though there's more controversy over this issue um, than there actually is. And there's a lot of opinion polling data that has indicated that these media representations have heavily influenced public opinion in the sense that the public uh, this is still changing, but you know, even as recently as 10 years ago, I think around 50% of the population actually believed that climate change was occurring and wow. um, was caused by fossil fuel emissions. That's Those numbers have gone up, but some of that is related to the media representations of it. And so I was kind of curious, like, well, does Wikipedia do something similar? Like, what are we getting out of online representations of global warming and, and how does that relate to these traditional representations? So for members of the audience who don't know a ton about the science behind global warming, and I, I'm not going to ask you a question about that science, yeah. but just in terms of some of the players, some of these rhetorical agents in this debate, mm. who, like, what is the IPCC? Is that, is it government? Is it uh, a bunch of scientists who just know each other like who is the IPCC and why do they know so much about climate change yeah the IPCC is a UN basically governed organization designed to assess the kind of worldwide scientific research about climate change and so what they do is have a bunch of representatives from different organizations like the National Academy of Science who kind of come together review research from scientists in a range of different areas it's international publicly funded research private research um, and try and get a sense of like what basically the status quo of knowledge about this issue is and then they issue reports every four or five years that are designed to kind of update global policymakers and the world at large about the sort of status quo about the knowledge about climate change. And I honestly do not remember off the top of my head when they issued their first report, but they've been issuing these for, I think, over 20 years now. And so the IPCC represents thousands and thousands and thousands of climate scientists and, and environmental scientists who do research in terms of they gather all of this data and aggregate it. And to some degree, and so there's really no other body that exists that issues other reports because the scale of the um, kinds of information that they're synthesizing in this report can't really be replicated. They're trying to get all of it. It's funded and supported from the UN, so it's not 
attached to a particular government or political organization, although one can, of course, argue about the politicization of the UN. So climate science encompasses a huge range of areas from atmospheric measurements to um, sort of ecosystem effects to global weather patterns and sea changes and expertise, you know, geologic, you know, it draws on geologic data. You have people who come from geology who are studying ice cores, things like that. And so when you get kind of dive into the micro level issues of things like, well, is this, was there similar trends 10,000 years ago, then, you know, you might have dissension about the, the different types of claims within particular sub areas or, uh, some some scientists who feel less certain about the predictions of climate models. That's another sort of area. So it's not unitary in the sense that everyone all def- definitively agrees on the same things, because that's just not how science generally works. Right. Um, but the main the what goes into the IPCC reports is something that has backing from the I mean the report is very detailed but back they kind of describe like the level of certainty to these things but there may be dissent in subcommunities about sort of parts of it but the main findings no there is no comparable body in in scope to the IPCC in 2007, the IPCC AR4 articulated an unprecedentedly high level of certainty about two basic propositions. One, about the fact that climate change is occurring. They said it was unequivocal, meaning there is zero doubt within the scientific community that this trend is happening. And that it is there's a very high likelihood that it is due to anthropogenic fossil fuel emissions. And they were careful to stipulate that very likely meant greater than 90% certainty, which is also nearly certain mm-hmm. within science. And they had never, the the organization had never before been, there is zero doubt basically that this is happening and we are almost con- entirely certain that it is caused by uh, greenhouse gas emissions, fossil fuel emissions, anthropogenic changes in, in the climate. And the, and as the you know there has been another report since then and they've always they've only articulated more certainty they <laughs> they just get more certain and the more time goes on but that was a, a high water mark in terms of the um, IPCC but it was also that was the year that IPCC and Al Gore jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. That was the year that uh, then President George W. Bush publicly acknowledged that climate change was occurring in the context of talking about problems with the U.S. reliance on foreign oil. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of things publicly where figures that had previously maybe not committed to this concept did, such as high. Uh, high-level conservative politicians who admitted that it was happening. Right. And I think it's really important to put this issue in context, especially now, because now here we are 10, 11 years later, uh, and the official line of many administration (laughs) officials in the current U.S. government has been something to the tune of uh, either climate change is not happening or it's not man-made. So, or it's not human caused, and so. There's, or if it is happening, it's good. Or if it is happening, then yeah, I, that's that's kind of the most baffling one of all. Yeah. But uh, and so, what I think, what I think, I, I, I where we want to go next 
is to talk about maybe maybe giving us some hint as to like how how did what was initially such a minority viewpoint to you know almost almost nobody was arguing you know this or nobody of consequence it seemed how did this come to represent such a dominant cultural narrative or like a dominant argument in the culture such that people in the highest rungs of power are now towing this line and so I don't want to make too grandiose of a claim for why that happened, but I think uh, at a micro level, I think we can maybe start talking about why why is why are Wikipedia articles an interesting place to look at the way that an issue like climate change is represented? Why is that important to to study? Okay, well, so I think the the first part of your question, and I think maybe just for listeners out there who might not have might not have heard this before there just in terms of uh why uh why is there this kind of kind of continued idea that there's doubt about this issue or that it's not certain there are several books that document the phenomena probably the the most accessible one is called merchants of doubt but during i think it was the 60s and 70s when climate scientists first started talking about the idea that this was happening um there were actual um, people within the fossil fuel industry who made a deliberate decision to try and fund science, scientific research that would question the validity of these findings and that that effort um, has been in play. Uh, Lea Ceccarelli, a rhetorical theorist, refers to this as the manufacture of controversy, that they have been funding a deliberate effort to create research studies that create doubt about this, and they have been doing it for a very long time. And so you have political figures who have what is real science in the sense that it's created by real scientists and there's data and there's evidence and there's legitimacy behind it that creates doubt and, and that continues to circulate even though in relation to the you know in relation to the consensus that data is a minority. You also have a range of media out outlets or media sources that kind of circulate in the public sphere that inflect the issue with doubt. One of the most famous examples that comes up a lot in Wikipedia is the Oregon petition, which was um, an online petition created by the, I want to say the Oregon Institute for Science and Medicine, or originally created there. It's notorious among kind of denier circles because it has aggregated something like 17,000 signatures from a range of people who are sort of purported to be client, si climate scientists to more comically like one of the Spice Girls apparently has signed it. Um, but it has been criticized for... So it, it actually argued that the U.S. government shouldn't accept the um, protocol, the protocols of, of the Kyoto Protocols because there wasn't sufficient evidence to suggest that science, uh, global warming was occurring. But it was, it's been criticized for masking or trying to look like a document from the National Academy of Science, which it is not, um, for having signatories who have nothing at all to do with climate scientists. But it continues to, it can, lives online and continues to aggregate signatures. And when you have something that's got 17,000 people, many of whom are quote unquote scientists, um, and it doesn't die, it gives people fuel. So 
one of the things so back to the question that you were trying to drive no, us toward I, Alex. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you I'm glad that you took a step back and let us know that though as well, because I think that, that accentuates an important part of this debate, which is that while there might be a, you know a minority opinion that denies either the existence of, of climate change or its or its human uh, causes that those people tend to be very powerful and that they're, they have a lot of, you know, they, they're, they are, they're well-funded. Yeah. They're well-funded and they, they have ties to people with a lot of political clout. And right. they have ties to media networks that right. can pump out messages. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, and and yeah. I, I should say there are scientists who are not necessarily affiliated with the uh, fossil fuel industry who express, um, you know uncertainty about some of the findings right sure. i don't want to say that you know that's not the case that, right, and that right. everyone who, who does that is biased but again they're more at the micro level of dissent about sort of the certainty attributed or some of the mm-hmm. forces that are given as causes not the idea that it's not happening right mm-hmm. i i think of wikipedia in many ways as sort of the the home page of the internet <laughs> Is that because it's your homepage? <laughs> it's not my homepage. It's not my homepage. No, there's this is this is backed with data. Um, I think the most recent Pew Internet report that I read was that quote one of the most visited websites in the world. It Shoot. comes up within um, the first search or the uh, the first Google search response within fifty percent of searches and within wow. the top five for ninety percent of searches, according to an analysis that was done five years ago. It's used by, it's not just used as kind of like a, you know, everybody wants to know something and they go to Wikipedia. It's increasingly used as a source in journalism and in other areas in which we think of people doing kind of their own research from their own expertise. But like, for example, it gets cited in by entities that range from like the New York Times to other kinds of policy deliberative practices. It's also, and it's reaches one of my kind of favorite Wikipedia anecdotes um, that I came across doing this project was that the university, I think it is of Southern California, recently started making medical students write and edit Wikipedia articles for course for credit in their third year coursework. Part of their justification for doing so was that in a lot of developing nations, there is not high saturation of like computer or laptop use because of infrastructure problems, but there is a higher saturation of cell phone use. But cell phone carrier, you know, cell phone plans can be very costly. And so people might have cell phones but can't get on the internet because they don't have data plans. Wikipedia has partnered with data providers in developing nations to make Wikipedia available on cell phones for people, even if they do not have a data plan. Wow. So, I mean, even we can argue about. Uh, how beneficial that the integration of that technology is, but Wikipedia is getting to people who don't have information literally from any other source on the internet or any other form of media. So it's it really does have a pretty big potential to impact the way that people understand issues around the world, from my perspective. I, I the most important might be a stretch, but pretty significant. I would I, say. Yeah, I would say you've made a pretty good case for why yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> consequential for how issues are represented publicly and the ways that I, you were talking about how it gets how articles and information that's on there, the sort of knowledge that gets created gets taken up by a lot of other entities. It gets spread sort of far and wide. So it does make a big difference the ways that information is represented on a site like that. So basically what I looked at was 
the lead section of two particular articles, the article titled Global Warming and the article titled Global Warming Controversy. And what happened, and I looked at the text of the articles themselves, differences in types of sources that were cited within the article as they changed through the course of the year, and also arguments about this stretch of text that unfolds on talk pages. So just for listeners, I think many people know this, but every Wikipedia article is accompanied by a talk page where <clears throat> that's a forum where editors can go to discuss changes to articles. Wikipedia, the Wikipedia articles about global warming at the time, I think were edited, and I'd have to go back and look at my numbers, um, by somewhere around over 100 to 150 people at one time who were making changes to the articles. And so they would have these very long, extensive arguments on the talk pages about what these pages should look like. So basically what happened was in the articles themselves, in the beginning of the year in January 2007, the global warming article represented the consensus about climate change as being basically unitary. They use the term the prevailing scientific opinion, so it wasn't as though this guy said this and this guy says that, it was just everyone thinks this thing is occurring and it's anthropogenic. And what happened and what happened through the course of the year as the different pieces of the IPCC report were made public and there was a lot of public controversy about it the level of certainty that was represented in the articles actually went down, despite the fact that the IPCC had articulated an unprecedentedly high level of certainty, it became basically less certain as it was represented over time in the articles themselves. So that was kind of one of the findings. The other thing that happened in comparing the two pages was that there was uh, basically a, a, a divergence over time between the global warming article and the global warming controversy article that also was attached to how editors were arguing about the two articles. And what they did basically was say, well, we're going to make the global warming article about, quote, the science. So this is where we're going to represent what the scientists say and the information here is taken from what um, is published in things like the IPCC report or in scholarly journal articles or in technical reports about it. And the global warming controversy article is going to be about not the science. It's going to be about uh, what people say in the mainstream media or what they say in policy discussions or what they say in publicly circulating sources. So they basically created kind of boundaries between the types of knowledge and the types of expert or non-expert information that showed up in the two articles, resulting in this kind of weird situation where depending on which... <laughs> what you Google or maybe what page you land on, you get kind of a very different representation of global warming as an issue in terms of whether it exists, what causes it, and so on and so forth. I wanted to talk at least a little bit about some of the actual examples of things that you saw happening within those articles that actually indicate that levels of certainty are changing through the language. Particularly, and I, I will be will be clear about the terms that we use here. There are a couple of different phenomena that uh, that we're drawing from rhetorical theory and from intertextuality and discourse analysis 
such as uh, dialogic expansion, dialogic contraction. Can you talk a little bit about what those two phenomena are and how those functioned in the discourse surrounding Wikipedia and how it affected the sort of levels of certainty about certain facts that were represented in those articles? Sure. So dialogic basically is kind of grounded in the Bakhtinian and Kristeva perspective on intertextuality. Dialogism, refer, like we can sort of think of it in terms of dialogue. We're talking about the exchange between two people. That's kind of how we can think about what dialogic is referring to. So the question of like that these terms are trying to articulate is how can we see in texts the presence of multiple voices or for example one voice or maybe no voice and what does that mean for how we think of the number of actors who are contributing to for example a fact so just to give some kind of accessible examples the statement the cat is on the couch is basically monologic i'm presenting this as a fact that is not contested in any way no one believes it no one thinks it it's just a statement that's true Mm -hmm. and then so it's monologic there's only one voice and one certainty Mm -hmm. if we can change the uh, structure of that sentence in particular ways like it seems like the cat is on the couch right so there's some doubt there i'm not sure or the cat might be on the couch again Mm -hmm. we we don't we're not certain but it seems that way and so those things introduce the potential that it could be otherwise. Cat might not be on the couch. So that introduces a level of uncertainty. Um, we also introduce uncertainty when we start attributing that statement to beliefs of particular actors. Alex thinks the cat is on the couch, right? right? Or Alex and his roommate think the cat are on the couch. But Calvin thinks the cat is on the floor, right? So as we have, so each of those has a different level of like, the fact that Alex thinks it makes it not true. It's, we hear Alex's thoughts and he's a person. And then once we get both of them into the text, we have this dialogue. So those are all examples of dialogic expansion. The more people we have talking about or contributing to a fact, the less certain basically that we think it is the more actors we have kind of having a say about something the less it becomes just a fact and the more it becomes something that people think or might be true right Mm -hmm. Um, whereas if we go in the opposite direction dialogic contraction is kind of eliminating those voices we go back to the cat is on the couch and it's not something somebody thinks it's just a thing that's true and that comes from I think Latour and Wolgar were the first people who kind of articulated some of that idea that those constructions, how we uh, use those kinds of modifiers and sentences or hedges or attributing sentences or statements to people correlate to how certain facts are in texts. Right. Yeah. And I, I hope it's okay. I have a couple of examples from yeah. the actual, from the actual text of uh, one of your chapters where you yeah. talk about the an actual shift that occurred in the uh, the excerpt from these Wikipedia articles. So this is from the excerpts in uh, February of 2007 of the global warming article. So not global warming controversy, which is the other one, but 
the uh, the lead paragraph says uh, the prevailing scientific opinion on climate change is that quote most of the observed increase in globally average temperature since the mid 20th century is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic greenhouse gas concentrations so that's a direct quote it's framed as you know the, the with that sort of is construction as you were talking about before the uh, the prevailing scientific opinion is this down below, it does say a small number of scientists disagree about the primary causes of the observed warming, uh, but that's the only mention that it gets in the lead paragraph. Whereas, when we get to uh, March of 2007, the lead has changed to the, Inter- the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, concludes that, uh, quote, most of the observed increase in globally average temperatures since the mid-20th century is very likely due to Uh, the observed increase in anthropogenic greenhouse gas concentration. So that's the same. But then even further down below, it says, these conclusions have been endorsed by at least 20 scientific societies and academies of science, including all of the national academies of science in the G8 states. And then after that sentence, some individual scientists disagree with parts of this conclusion, as does the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. So, so what happened there? What's, what's exactly going on between those two sections? So you have the first one, the phrase, the prevailing scientific opinion. Basically, there are no human actors in that sentence. There's no one who holds the opinion. Uh, it's just a thing that exists and takes action on its own in mm. the uh, structure of the sentence. So, so it's to some degree distanced from the idea that there are people who hold claims and it makes it sound unitary. There's only one of them. There's just one opinion and it, it exists, you know, <laughs> like the cat on the couch. Right. The, the, you know, after much arguing about the sources on the talk pages, you have these different actors, the International Panel on Climate Change, the National Academy of Science, the you have a quantity so there's multiple different kind of like like small things that are happening they quantify the number there's 20 of these there's Mm -hmm. 30 of these um so we get this comparison of like all of these organizations versus this one organization but there are particular named actors meaning organizations that hold opinions there's numbers of them there's a variation in the signal phrases or, or reporting birds that are used to talk about them and so instead of this idea that there's just there's one opinion and it's widely held, um, you have multiple different actors and multiple different entities taking stances. Um, I mean, that particular excerpt is odd because you can sort of argue like it kind of makes it sound like this one side is right and the other side is wrong. Mm-hmm. But just by virtue of laying bare the number of participants in it, particularly when you start to attribute dissent to a legitimate scientific organization, right. it makes it sound there's like there's a bunch of people arguing, not that there's one opinion that everybody has. And it attributes it to particular people. Right. So, yeah. so if, if you're a reader who is, for whatever reason, skeptical of you know, very official sounding, you know, panels, an international panel like that creeps you out for some reason. Seeing that source, seeing that this is a belief held by this group that's rendered as a person in the text makes it feel as though, oh, well, that's just their opinion, so I don't need to believe it. Whereas in the initial example, it's an objective fact that's out there in the world. It's not contestable. Right. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's the prevailing scientific opinion versus the International Panel on Climate Change. Right. I mean, the, 
And there's also the idea that in addition to adding that, um, that the conclusions uh, have been endorsed by different scientific organizations. I mean, there is, the, I could see the argument that they're providing more, they're, the, the article is providing more data to support, or more sort of justification to support that side, but you might come at it from a different perspective and say, well, why do they need to add more justification? You know, it almost seems like there is, it, it's, it, this is what we're talking about when we talk about dialogicality. There, it seems it, to a reader like there are other voices out there that make it so that there needs to be this extra justification, that there's a reason that you need to provide that extra support for it. Right. And so as a result, it ends up making the what is otherwise factual data that's, you know, that was once represented as the prevailing scientific opinion is now a perspective. Right, exactly. I also think it's funny that the, the reporting verb there is endorsed. Yeah, right. um, and and that carries yeah. certain connotations That's right. uh, related <laughs> right. to money, right? Sure. Right, exactly. And, and that was something that I thought was was very interesting that you brought up very briefly in your analysis, but that the dissenters uh, often love to attribute like monetary interests right. to kind of the scientists who are fueling the consensus on global warming. But you see those get made on both sides. And so what happens is the, um, it, when you look at the arguments, people, I sort of think of it as like arguing up the chain where it starts off with this idea that y you can argue about the genre, you can argue about the person who wrote the genre, you can argue about the context in what the genre was produced. And all of these types of uh, sort of argumentative resources continue to fuel this controversy and make it seem justified to represent these actors as, you know, just, you know, particular people who are motivated by different stances and everybody's got their own sort of bias or maybe they're, you know, funded by this agency or another one and therefore we can't resolve this issue, right? And then for, for the perspective of the global warming, we don't, you know, it, it's not that you need to convince people that it's not happening, you just need to stop them from committing to the idea that it is to stop the machinery of mitigation and policy changes from happening. So it is very effective in that sense. So we are sitting down today with Daniel Dixon Laprade, a uh, rhetoric PhD alumnus at CMU and currently an adjunct professor here. Uh, so welcome, Daniel. We're so glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so you are a uh, former Wikipedia editor, are you not? Um, maybe. <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> yes, I am. I am. Uh, yeah. yeah, did that for a good long while, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you post on any other websites? Uh... Yeah, I used to uh, really enjoy getting into arguments with strangers uh, online. Uh, when Amazon.com used to have discussion forum sites on various topics, I would uh, uh, go full swirl into those. That was just sort of my hobby. Some people are into sports. I was into arguing, so... <laughs> So, what's uh, what, what originally got you into that as like as a hobby? What what, what piqued your interest in arguing with people online? Well, there were a couple of things. Two things that happened. One was uh, I had long trusted scientists about things. Uh, and the theory of evolution, and I loved dinosaur books as a kid, 
but I also didn't see how evolution could explain everything that I saw around me. So I had a free semester and decided, okay, I'm going to read up on this and was realized, wow, this intelligent design stuff that people put as a, uh, an opponent to evolution is malarkey and it's hideously <laughs> stupid, right? And the other thing was the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Before that time, I was completely apolitical. And after that, I realized, wow, this is horrific. I need to be a little bit more alert about what's going on. And as I went online and started to see the arguments people made against the theory of evolution or for things like the Iraq invasion, I was like, you know, there's room for disagreement about policy, but when people actually believe the Earth is 10,000 years old uh, or something like that, that's a problem that it seems like one could fix, right, theoretically. Right. It seems to me that when people want to do things that are against the public interest or against the scientific consensus, the first thing they have to do is to make sure that good sources of information are hard to come by and that mm. the good information is drowned out by bad, the intelligent design movement uh, being Exhibit A, of course. Uh, and so Wikipedia, I thought, might be a problem like that. And so I had a, uh, I used to love John Stahl, so when I watched 60 Minutes as a kid, thought he was a terrific reporter, uh, but then he turned into kind of a, a right-wing libertarian pundit kind of yeah. guy with very sketchy connections. And so I was looking at his Wikipedia entry one day, and I'm like, there's nothing about how sketchy and horrible this guy is. This is being written completely by people who admire him. Right. So I became an anti-John Stossel partisan. Uh, that's not a good <laughs> thing or a bad thing. That's just what I did. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there, I started looking at global warming pages and things like that and saying, wow, why is this being covered in this way? This is deceptive and distorting. So tell us about uh, this article that you've spearheaded the deletion of, <laughs> which is called Consensus Science. Yeah, what, is, what is Consensus Science? So uh, the phrase Consensus Sense of Science was coined by Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame. Uh, less well known <laughs> is... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thump, thump. We, we do sound effects, man. We're, yeah, it's like, this is a radio show. Podcast, yes. Well, we are, yes. Yes. I get to be Jeff Goldblum when you say that. <laughs> uh, nature finds a way. So, but anyway, Michael Crichton is less well known as a guy who uh, denies the scientific consensus on global warming, oh, wow. and he came up with the phrase consensus science. Um, uh, rhetoric scholars, we call this an ideograph, a, a phrase like family values that seems to have a straightforward meaning but actually has a lot of stuff hidden away in it. Um, and the idea of consensus science is it's a phrase that means that scientists are uniquely suited to falling into groupthink, and the global warming consensus is a form of groupthink, not good science. So it's similar to Stephen Malloy's idea of junk science, which is basically uh, any science that Fox News says is not real science. You know? yeah. Um, so yeah. And yeah. so there was a page on, the, on this uh, idea of consensus science, even though it's just... Uh, the guy who wrote Jurassic Park made a speech one day with it, uh, and I felt like there was no real reason to have a separate page for that. It seemed like a way in which global warming denialist folks were trying to amplify that message, and I saw, you know, why not just have this as a, a sentence or a paragraph in the global warming uh, controversy page? Right. Uh, and so I spearheaded the, the idea that we should uh, delete that. And someone else had made that uh, recommendation before, but it had sort of, there'd been a hung jury, basically. It was mm -hmm. a tied vote. Uh -huh. And so I gave, uh, found additional reasons that I gave for that, and there was a nasty argument that's really fun to read. Yeah. Uh, so basically, my main, I had a, a variety of, of, of different arguments, but a lot of them centered around Wikipedia's verifiability policy, right. which is if Joe Schmo says that X is true, uh, well, do other people say that tr uh, also? Can other folks verify that, or is that just Joe Schmo's opinion? 
Uh, and so Michael Crichton uses the phrase consensus science. And so my basic argument is, first of all, is he a scientist, a historian of science, a philosopher of science? Well, no, he has medical training and that's it, right? Um, and second, are folks who actually are scientists or historians or philosophers of science, are they using the term? Are they picking it up and saying, oh, yeah, that's a really good argument? No, they're not, right? Since it's just this uh, uh, secretion of one particular brain, it doesn't deserve its own Wikipedia entry and should therefore be deleted or merged into uh, you know, one of the million other pages Wikipedia has about uh, global warming controversy right. and consensus. Yeah. Right. Some of the pushback was, we've already had this argument and it's done now. And what had actually happened was somebody had said, maybe we should delete this. They'd voted on it. It had been tied. So they left it as is with the possibility of it being revisited later. But uh, the attempt was made to completely ignore all my arguments and just say, we've had this argument. It's done. Which, is, um, which I think is so fascinating. There's even one user on here who says... Um, actually, the consensus was to keep the article. There is no reason to revisit this issue, which... And see, there was no consensus at all. Right. It was no a split decision. Wikipedia yeah, which, which, yeah, which I just find very... I mean, I, f I find that ironic, given, yeah. the, given the fact that... It makes me want to give a second look to Michael Crichton's idea of consensus science. <laughs> is this an example of, you know, it's, yeah. it's really yeah, bizarre. False, false consensus. Yeah. So, um, and sometimes though people did make actual arguments. Uh, for example, the argument that Michael Crichton does have some scientific training—it's just medical school training. But he's not an imbecile, right? He's—he's he's not ignorant entirely of science. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also people trying to say, well, here's an example of an article I found where this term does get used. Um, so people did try to give pushback in the way of real arguments as well. Um, so, uh, but by and large, uh, the arguments were, okay, delete, I buy it. Uh, and so a, a super majority ended up coming out uh, in favor of the deletion. There were just a, a couple of people saying, yeah, no, you know. I saw this very clearly as an attempt to amplify an anti-scientific idea for no good reason other than it attacks global warming. And so right. this was something that this was like all I was doing for a few days, like really thinking over this, <laughs> typing for an hour, going to, you know, uh, I was probably... Going uh, on a little walk to like think... Exactly, right? like, yes. Yeah. Took a lot of little... <laughs> little angry walks but a lot of little walks yeah um yeah because uh, i felt like i had an extremely strong case and i didn't you know this is like getting a divorce you don't want to have to do it four times if you have to do it it should just be one time uh if you can avoid doing it even better right, right. so uh, I, I wanted this to be the sort of thing where this argument is done and is never revisited and this page is as dead as a doornail because it just has no value for wikipedia or anyone else and in fact it has negative value because it might give people the notion that uh, sane, educated, scientifically educated people have compelling reasons to doubt global warming when this is not really the case. So I would love if we could get into what the hell do we do? <laughs> this is bleak. Um, yeah. Climate change discussions often are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. what do we do as a, a political society, but also what do we do as readers and, and rhetors ourselves? Like, how do we engage in these debates in a way that doesn't shut down multiple perspectives, but also allows for decisions to be reached and made, especially in urgent cases such as this 
Um, yeah, whatever you guys want to say about what to be done, I'm happy to sign on for because I don't have necessarily, you know, I would love to give kind of a magic bullet for how you argue against an argument aside from making, like getting better at making better arguments. But well, I, I would just I would also submit that there there is the idea that uh, if you do still believe in representative democracy which you know some some days i do more than others uh often a little bit more cynical these days but there's also this idea that you know if we if we do believe in electing people who have a message that could actually you know that could actually tell a sort of affirmative story about the kinds of policies that we want to see rather than what i think one of the impetuses might be for uh, coming back against climate change denialists, for example. I mean, if, say, that I am taking the position of somebody who does believe in that global warming is happening and that it has man-made causes, and I want to argue back against, uh, you know, climate change denialists or somebody who doesn't believe, uh, I think one of the sort of go-to strategies that often comes up, at least in popular discourse and probably among lots of people, is uh, fact-checking. You know, use it, like, just referencing the data or sort of pointing back to numbers or uh or these you know these kinds of findings and referencing them and saying like well you know i have all this data i have all these numbers that that sort of reaffirms my position um i i think that there's reason to be skeptical of that approach of just merely fact checking something because as you mentioned earlier anna sometimes these positions are very tied to identity they're tied to you know people's sort of belief structures rather than a reliance on empirical data that they maybe just haven't seen. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, um, I think one of the things that to me is kind of interesting about uh, the findings is the Wikipedia editors were dealing, you know, they were on the ground trying to be like, what do we do about these uh, denialist arguments? And, and the way that they wanted to solve the problem was just to basically erect these boundaries and just more or less say, this perspective does not get to be here. Um, that's a little bit of a boiled down representation of it, but say, you know, so I think at that point is where I become kind of skeptical about this idea that somehow kind of like greater information literacy is going to kind of solve the problem, even though I do think that's true. Like we can, we can trying to educate people, for example, you know, that's kind of, we always go to educate, educate people about how science works, provide data, give compelling arguments, but it doesn't get us away from this subjectivist problem. And it doesn't, and what often kind of happens when you get this, like, I just don't believe you, this dismissiveness is just boundary building where we just say, all right, well, you, if you will not or refuse to, or don't buy my, representation of science we're just gonna you just don't get to talk right how do you okay right or we're just gonna we're we're gonna create these enclaves where only technical information gets to be present so it seems like it might be beneficial in the context of global warming but in many arenas this is a tremendously problematic solution to that kind of issue right so that's kind of why I become skeptical about this idea that we can just kind of like give better arguments or create better numbers because I do think that there's this tendency to just sort of cut th- cut things off or, or say, well, you, you have your numbers and I have my 
individual perspective when you go over there and I go over here, right? It's that kind of problem that I'm like, I don't know how to solve that. That boundary move that I think we start to make, mm-hmm. you know, except by like overwhelming, you know, the populace with number. <laughs> like, yeah. Or, you know, just getting more people onto one side and saying, well, we still get to vote about this issue and taking over the, the control in that perspective. But Well, yeah, and I, I appreciate the wisdom of your perspective that you're not you're not offering like a catch-all solution sure. because I think what I really like about your study is that you show how contextual um, deliberation is in any particular issue. In this particular one, I mean, at least my reading of it, based on what I've read of your analysis, like in some ways, the Wikipedia editors came up with like a, a not optimal, but like, Right. Not sub-op- non-suboptimal right. solution. Right. right. Um, so in this particular case, you know, they found a, a balancing of deliberative norms and, um, you know, material solutions for, like, getting relatively scientifically grounded information out to a lot of people around the world. Right. And so in a way, like, this example is kind of inspiring. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Anna, thanks for coming on Reverb. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, thanks, Anna. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.